all in good humour, all in good heart. What do I mean by generational wars? A lot's been written in the press about it. I don't know if you've caught up with it. A typical scenario might be like this, you know, baby boomers are coming into retirement and they're reflecting on their young millennial uh, children, those born in the early 1980s to the early 2000s. And you've heard the rhetoric, I'm sure. You know, these young people complain about not being able to get into the housing market. If they didn't spend so much money on their smashed avocado breakfasts and instead they bank their money, they'd be able to get in, they'd be able to save, they'd be able to buy a house like we did. We didn't eat out when we were their age. Or perhaps these young people, are they ever going to leave home? They don't seem to have a plan for their future. They're just kippers. Kids in parents' pockets eroding retirement savings. That's what they are. They're hanging around forever. I don't know. They seem to want to start these days with where we finished in life. They want the very best of everything. We can relate to that for some baby boomers. But hang on, the millennials say. You baby boomers, you born between 1948 and 1964 were the most privileged generation to ever live. And it's because of your opulence that we are now having to pay. You had free education. We finish now coming out with a degree with a hex or a help debt around our neck so we're fo so far behind before we even start it's not funny. You have job security. We now come into an age where there's a lot of contract work we've got to take. Even for us that are teachers, we get casual positions. It's hard for us to get a permanent position. Don't talk to us about housing. When you bought your house... It only costs you twice the average annual salary to buy the house. And now, for our generation, it's costing us seven, eight or nine times the average annual salary to get into the market. So don't give us a hard time about that. And because it costs so much to get into the market, it requires two of us now to live and to earn that money to pay off a housing loan. And that gives us another cost that you didn't have to bear in the past. Cost of childcare. And if you baby boomers didn't want to purchase so many investment properties, there wouldn't be so much demand on houses in the first place. The prices would be lower and us poor millennials will be able to get into the market. I'm sure you've heard stuff like that. Maybe those words have even come out of your lips from time to time. Generational law, um, wars, so to speak, and I use that word loosely, wars, been around for a long time. I remember when I was newly qualified as a chartered accountant that one of the partners and one of the, you know, the firm I was working for, he said, Brian, I want you to go down to this, this, um, this business, medium-sized business down the lower North Shore and just start the audit. The rest of the team will come in later. But just go in, introduce yourself to the you know, the, the general manager. So I walked in, did that, introduced myself to the general manager. He was about 35 years of age and the managing director, his father, sat in the office next door. And his father had built this company, a really profitable company. It had four divisions and his father had done well. His father was probably late 50s, early 60s at the time. But I walked in the office, general manager, the young bloke closed the door behind me and he said, any questions you've got on this audit, they to come here. The bloke next door 
It's time he moved on. It's time he retired. I'm in charge now. I've got a vision for this company. Now, for an auditor to hear things like that, alarm bells suddenly go wrong. You've got a question, you come and see me, you know. I've got an answer for you. But it wasn't so much that. It was the most uncomfortable feeling. Here was I looking at a 35-year-old fellow that was then, I suppose, about 10, maybe 12 years older than I was, talking with disdain about his dad. And the only reason he was sitting in the office he was sitting in was because his dad had worked so hard before him. Such a lack of respect. And over the course of that audit, all our audit team that came down to get engaged and even the staff of that place could tell that tension. The generational war that was there. So what's that got to do with 1 Peter chapter 5? When we first look at um, 1 Peter chapter 5, we often think it's an exhortation to elders alone. That's just the first three or four verses about elders. This is really a call to a Christian community to come and to live together and to honour each other, to mutually respect and love one another and to live in a way that is so contrary to the way that the world would tell us to live. And we'll unpack what that says um, a little later. But really what Peter was saying, your life in the church needs to be so distinctively different, needs to have all ages, all generations together focused on who you are as God's people. Don't divide down into the generations. Recognise that each of you have a part to play. Each of you have gifts. And I've got a plan for you, is what Jesus says to us. And Peter shows us what that might look like a little later. I was given a great illustration of, um, of that of cross-generational ministry in my early Christian service. Um, the Kelshaw and the Codrington family have kind of shared a common um, church path at different times over the generations. Actually, Philip and Bruce's dad, Arthur, their, um, Arthur's uh, mother, can you believe it, who would probably be about 120 years of age if we were still alive, was my mother's Sunday school teacher in, uh, in Gladesville. And then as a young bloke, both families found themselves at Pennanil's Baptist Church and Arthur and Jean Kilshaw, Philip and Bruce's mum and dad, were my Christian Endeavour leader as a 13-year-old kid at, um, at Pennon Hills. So I knew them, that's the first time I met them and I always called them Mr and Mrs Kilshaw. That was it, that was my sign of respect. They were that generation above me. And I valued the, the input into their, in, they gave me into my Christian life. And then when I was a young bloke, I found myself over here at Dural Baptist and who should be here, but the Kelshaw family as well. And at the age of 25 or thereabouts, I took on the role of treasurer of the church here at Dural and who should be church secretary but Arthur Kelshaw. And so I always called him Mr Kelshaw, could never get over that. Mr Kelshaw or Mr Peters were two fellas that I'd known since I was small. And so one day I remember... Um, uh, um, Mr Kelshaw and I were hopping in a car together to go off to the Baptist Union soon after we'd started on this diaconate. And he said to me, boy or fella, as he used to call me, he said, from now on, forget this Mr Kelshaw business. I know it's hard for you. You've known me since you were very small. But we're on this journey together and we're a team together. You call me Arthur. And that was absolutely fantastic. It was something that I thought, you know what? 
That was him saying to me, I don't care how old I am. I'm not setting myself up above you. We are together on a journey serving God and I want you to realise how much I value you in that journey. And that was a great encouragement. And really that's what, that's what Peter is saying here. What Peter is giving us is this picture of a, of a church community where there is a humility, a recognition that God gifts each person, irrespective of their age, that God has given us all different experiences to use for his glory and for the benefit of the church, that God has uniquely shaped us in a way that he wants to grow us together, irrespective of our age. So Peter, at the opening part of um, those verses that Lynn um, read earlier, Peter's talking about humility, he's talking about gentleness, he's talking about love. And some of you are saying, Peter? Sounds more like the Apostle John. Peter? Talking like that? Because let's go back and revisit what we know of Peter. How much Peter had grown over those 30 years. In the time that um, Peter spent with Jesus, we know that Peter was the hothead. He was the impulsive, um, outspoken and brash disciple, wasn't he? So here was Peter. Remember, Jesus had to rebuke Peter um, because Peter had rebuked Jesus. When Jesus was speaking about his death, what did Jesus have to say? Get thee behind me, Satan. And when he was Peter, as impulsive as he was, up on the mountain during the transfiguration, and he's saying, let me erect three shelters here, you know, the big go-getter. Let me erect three shelters here, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you, Jesus. And then all of a sudden, the glory of the Lord comes down, and Peter is just in awe as the Spirit of God moved. It was Peter who cut off the year of the servant of the high priest in an impulsive uh, moment, on Jesus' arrest. It was Peter who was lacking a lot of humility and in pride said, Ah, Jesus, even though everyone else might fall away and disown you, I will never, ever disown you. And then after Jesus' death and burial and resurrection and ascension, Peter still battled in so many ways. It was Peter, remember, who was instructed to go and to take the gospel to the Gentiles, Peter said, no way. And then had that vision, you know, rise, Peter, kill and eat. No, no, Lord, I'm not going to eat anything unclean. Don't you call unclean what I've called clean. Peter, you go. So Peter had to be, I suppose, led along that path as, as God took him. And then it was Peter also that was there liaising or having a, a good time with Gentile Christians when those legalistic Christians came out of Antioch and so then he started to recognise what was happening because the other believers were there including the Apostle Paul he started to, to dis, um, distance himself from these legalistic Jews and then Paul got stuck into him and said you hypocrite what do you think you're doing so here was Peter who grew so much over those period, that period of time um, he was challenged because we do know that Peter was the natural-born leader. He was the outspoken, I suppose, disciple. It was Peter who first said, when Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? He said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What did Jesus say to him? 
hadn't been revealed to him naturally. It was a divine revelation. It was Peter that was there with James and John when Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. It was Peter with James and John that were there during the transfiguration. Peter was a part of a special group and he grew when he saw the Spirit of God move. It was also Peter, as we know, that on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit moved with power, he preached with such passion that 3,000 people responded and were added to the church. And here is Peter about 30 years ago. At the time he wrote 1 Peter, um, here it's estimated to be about 63 AD. We don't really know how, how Peter died, but um, some church history would tell us that he was crucified. He chose to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to suffer the same death as Jesus. So some church historians would say he was crucified upside down in the persecution of Nero around 65 AD. And this letter was written just a couple of years before that. So Peter's life had changed so much. This man that was brash and outspoken and bold as God mellowed him over his generation, if you like, of life. From a 30-year-old to an early 60-year-old, God transformed Peter's life. And we can read him writing and acting in a completely different way to what we saw him do when he was walking with Jesus on this earth. So there's a little bit of a, a question I have for us at the moment is, as you look back on your life, how, how have you changed? How has God mellowed you perhaps over these years? For those of us that are younger, what have you noticed about older Christians? Have you journeyed with them through life? What have you seen God doing in their lives? How have they changed? How have they grown? Just take a, a minute to think about that. I know in my own life, I was probably a hothead when I was younger. My mother would probably tell you that, the rest of my family. And um, God has mellowed me over time. Certainly give me more of a desire to wait on God rather than be impulsive and to jump in things. Probably become wiser. And I think that's what happens. And it's in that background that now I want us to push on and, and look at these next verses of, uh, of chapter 5. Because Peter there in these, in these verses, these 11, 14 verses of, of chapter 5, he deals with elders and then he talks to those who are young and then he talks to all together. So this is not just about elders in the church. This is about us living with mutuality together. And so, firstly, he says to the leaders of the church, there are three, three things I want to warn you about. I want to warn you about laziness and obligation. So be shepherds of the flock that's under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. We know that it's possible to serve in leadership through obligation. Oh, well, no one's going to run this. So I suppose I better step up and do it. Yeah, I've watched others do it, but now it's my time. 
And maybe that's the heart and that's the passion we have when we step up into that role. I've got to say there have been times in my Christian service where I've probably jumped into different roles like that. God's not going to use us with that. God's not going to use us when we have to be urged and overcome our laziness and a sense of obligation. What Peter's really saying to the elders here is this is a privilege. Leadership is a privilege. And so when you approach this, don't just do it because you feel you must. Recognise the privilege it is and get passionate about it. And pray that God would take you on that, on that journey and grow you. Then there's a warning against greed. What he's saying is be shepherds of God's flock, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. What does that mean? It means that we don't come as leaders seeking to use the church for our own financial gain. Or any gain, really but not greedy to accumulate things that might come from the leadership of that. And that even extends to people who are being paid by the church, saying, am I giving value to, to my congregation? Why am I doing this? Am I actually serving God and being paid, a paid employee of the church because I can't think of anything else to do? Because this job offers me the flexibility that I maybe not be able to get anywhere else? got to be honest about our motives as we serve as leaders and that's a check for us then the third thing is a warning against pride peter warns them and he says be shepherds of god's flock not lording it over those entrusted to you but being examples to the flock first thing i want to say about this pride thing is you can see how much peter the apostle peter had grown in his faith. Here was Peter that we saw those proud times when he walked with Jesus. I will not fall about away, Lord. Everyone else might. But at the start of this chapter 5, um, Peter says something like this. I urge you as a fellow elder. He placed himself on the same platform as every other elder in the church. This is Peter who Jesus said, you're a rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. This is Peter who could have actually said, I exhort you as a senior elder in this place or a senior leader to live your life like this. He didn't say that at all. He was filled with humility. I urge you as a fellow elder. That's what God calls us to be as leaders. People who are not lording it over others. And we know that churches can be places where there is abuse. Sure, we've seen the Royal Commission into uh, child sexual abuse, but we also know that churches can be places where power is abused, where bullying can take place. We know that that can happen in the life of churches. And as leaders, Peter is warning about that. He's saying, you don't come in here as a leader and throw your weight around and make sure everyone else in the church is doing their thing to make sure things are done. If you're a leader, you come in here as a servant and you lay your life down and you serve. That's what you're called to do and to be. And then Peter gets on to the younger ones. And he said, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourself to your elders. It's all that's said to the young people. 
submit yourself to the elders. And I suppose part of that submission is to recognise how much Peter's life had changed over that period of time and for young people to, to recognise that people who are older in the faith have had experiences, failures, successes, the hard and the painful times of life that have shaped them to lead. And those experiences mean in many ways they are wiser. Not always, but you like to think wiser in the faith because those experiences of life have shaped and moulded them to be able to, um, to serve God. So it's really part of that submission is a recognition of a position that a, a, a leader has in the life of the church. And that leadership position has even come because of a recognition of the way God has moved. So the question for young people, uh, young leaders even today, is to say, how much will my life have changed over the next 30 years? If I'm, like, uh, if I'm a 30-year-old, 25-year-old now, I can see how Peter's life has changed when I'm 60. What might God have done in my life? What might the experiences of my life been like? How would God have used me? How would God have shaped me to lead others? And then Peter writes to all of you. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. That's an exhortation to, to all that Peter was writing to, to all in the church. Let's go back to where 1 Peter started. Do you remember where 1 Peter started? So Peter started and he said, you know, we rejoice that you have new birth into a living hope, into an inheritance that will never spoil, fade or perish, kept in heaven for you. It was that whole rejoicing in hope, uh, in the inheritance that waits, in eternity and the joy of that. But the other big theme of 1 Peter it's also about suffering and persecution. This is written, and, and remember that um, little cartoon clip that was so informative, that seven-minute thing that uh, Luke showed on, on week one? An absolutely fantastic caricature of, of what the whole of 1 Peter was about, and one of those major themes was about suffering. And so here is Peter writing to this group of people and saying, come together, recognise who you are as a community together, Yes, elders in the community, yes, young ones, but all of you have this responsibility to be clothed with humility because he goes on to say, remember who the enemy is. There's no need for these generational wars. 
as our society would want to tell us. There's no re- um, reason to pit one generation against another in the life of the church. We're all one. And the real enemy we've got is prowling around like a lion seeking who he may devour. That's what's happening. So Peter's writing to the church to saying, I want you to be one. And I want you to recognize that you can come together, humble yourself, cast all your anxiety on Jesus, and then recognize who the enemy is and resist the enemy. Because he's going to try and pull you down. See, it's easy in church life, isn't it, to look at an in crowd and an out crowd. We can so easily fall into that habit. Oh, these people here, they're more committed than others. They're really part of the in crowd. That's a one-way street. Total disunity and a church is going to fall apart. Friends, we're all one. We've been called to see and to know Jesus and to follow Jesus. We can even do that between our congregations. We can say, well, they're of the feast community. They don't come to the morning. Or they're of the morning. They don't do this. That is counterproductive to who we are. As a church, we are one. Yes, we might have different services, but we are one. As a church leadership, we've tried to work hard to provide these different opportunities to come together as one church and to truly wait on God and to grow together and to follow the Lord together. So those prayer and worship nights that we have are done for that particular purpose. The night we had, the three nights we had with um, uh, in, in September were other great opportunities to come together and to, and to meet for the first time, perhaps for those that haven't. We need as a church to attend those things that are cross-generational and even cross our services. We need to work hard to be one people and to remember where the enemy is. And the enemy is seeking to devour us like a roaring lion. And so there are four things that Peter says to us. Firstly, humble yourselves. Wait on God together. Recognize your need of God. Then cast your anxiety on Jesus. Truly live out humility and the anxiety about being humble and transparent in the, light, in, in the face of each other. And just cast your anxiety on Jesus in that because he cares for you. And then be alert to and resist the devil. And finally, know that the victory is assured. Know that the victory is assured. And that's where I want to leave it today. But what I'd love to do is for us to take this time now um, to pray for one, one another. We want to encourage this opportunity in the life of our church. And because we're talking about cross-generational stuff, what I'd love you to do is to try and pray for someone today who you don't normally pray with and perhaps someone that you don't know well. Now, if you're a visitor here, don't be offended. This is not to put anyone on the spot. Um, and I apologise in advance for that. But I want us who are regular in the life of the church to really take the opportunity to develop those deep, deeper relationships together. We've got five minutes to do this before we go and have a cup of tea, sing our final song and then go on our prayer walk. But just to spend some time with people you don't normally and ask them what you can pray for them this week. Can I encourage you to do that? I'll pray first, and then I'd love you to immediately get up. I don't care if you have to move from your seat. That might be the thing you've got to do, because you're all sitting with your mates. Um, So uh, to do that and pray together. So let me do that. 
Heavenly Father, we want to praise you and thank you. We want to praise you and thank you for the truth of your word. That in Christ Jesus we are one. You call us together. There is one saviour. There is only one way that we can be saved. And together, all of us sitting in this room, just want to declare our love for you. And Father, we ask that you would even take this opportunity this morning to build our relationships with each other deeper, to grow us as your people, to have us step out of our comfort zones. Yep, we're anxious in that, but Lord, you ask us to cast our anxiety on you. You're going to care for us. So even in this time of anxiety now, that Lord, you would just grow us and use us to encourage one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, please do that now and... um, And then Dan will come and uh, close our time in about five minutes.